All right, we are back. Let's do a little more science uh, in this segment. We would note the cover of New Scientist magazine this week is a wonderful dovetailing article to Radio Parallax. And no, we don't think the, uh, the editors are, are listening to us, although we hope they are. But uh, the cover story is Unknown Elements, 13 materials you've never heard of but can't live without. We had enjoyable chat on this program a few weeks back about the periodic table of the elements with author Sam Keen, which we got a lot of positive feedback for. We heard from uh, several people that when they realized we were going to talk about the periodic table of the elements, they thought, man, that's going to be a snoozer. But au contraire, the book The Disappearing Spoon is quite entertaining, and so was its author, Sam Keen. We recommend uh, that you listen to that one, too, on our archives if, if you missed it on the first go-round. The book was good, and so is the article, because you might think you don't need neodymium, erbium, hafnium, tantalum, or tellurium, but you'd be wrong. Just to cite one example, neodymium, mixed with iron and boron, makes magnets that are weight-for-weight weight 12 times stronger than conventional iron magnets, which is the reason why your laptop is so compact and lightweight. And Mr. McMillan adds, for lighter speakers for amplifiers... And you thought those rare Earth elements had no significance. Ha! Now, as I recall, the Starship Enterprise was always trying to find planets that had a bunch of rare Earth mining going on. Once again, that show was ahead of its time. Although we're still waiting for the dilithium crystals to uh, come into their own. You know, we'd also like to refer you to the July issue of Sky and Telescope magazine for its article about the planet Neptune, which, like the periodic table, would seem at first guess to some of you to be a snoozer of a topic, but it's not. One of the things that's curious about Neptune is we're now marking its first year, <laughs> its first orbit since discovery. Notes the article, as far as we Earthlings are concerned, Neptune rang its New Year's on September 23rd, 1846. German observers were the first to spot the planet, but there was a bit of a Controversy as to who calculated where to point the telescope. The data that led to the discovery came from the French, but there was an Englishman before that who had actually made done some calculations that would have perhaps allowed them to find it as well. Quite a stirring story of three different nationalities. We would, at any rate, refer you to the article, which contains uh, some star charts to allow you to find Neptune with a uh, with a decent little telescope. It's it's not that hard. If uh, you'll take the time, and we hope that you will, to help bring in the new year out at Neptune. And if you want to be exact about it, the, uh, the New Year's Eve on Neptune will be on July 12th, 2011, here on planet Earth. You know, doggone it, I got a fistful of science articles here and less than 15 minutes to go through them. Well, let's see what we can do. I believe we mentioned in passing a few weeks back that there's some evidence now that a tiny worm, which has been labeled Halicephalus mephisto, has been found nearly a mile between the Earth's surface. It had previously been thought that only bacteria could survive that far down, but uh, these are tiny worms living with little oxygen and no sunlight. It, naturally enough, feeds solely on bacteria. Here's the part that Radio Parallax is puzzled over. They're claiming that the, this, these worms are being found, you know, a mile down in the earth and may have lived there for as long as 12,000 years, but we have to ask, how do they know? 
because they're down there in South Africa in gold mines a couple of miles down. And, you know, how do we know that you know, there just isn't some local crack in the rock that's got some bacteria that the worms are living on? I mean, I don't know. I mean, if one of the workmen for lunch takes down a cup of yogurt down in the gold mine, can, can scientists say, world's deepest yogurt culture discovered in South Africa? Well, we just, we don't have an update on this one yet. And we suspect it, it probably is the real deal. And then another story regarding animals far down under, which we don't quite understand. Apparently, people are upset about the fact that beavers are running wild in Argentina. Article reprinted the Sacramento Bee from the Washington Post's Juan Forero noted that in the Tierra del Fuego National Park in Argentina, authorities are concerned about uh, the rampant spread of beavers. Article notes that tourists who flock to the southern tip of South America rejoice when they see the beavers acting busy as beavers, <laughs> building dams and gnawing through trees. But the article notes that it's exactly their tireless work ethic that is alarming. The authorities, who reportedly tried just about everything to stop the beavers, including a campaign to get locals to acquire a taste for beaver meat. Now there's talk about hiring professional sharpshooters to search and destroy every last one of them, perhaps from helicopters. Calling Sarah Palin. The story is they introduced 25 pair of Canadian beavers in 1946 down in Argentina to generate a commercial fur trade. There's now 200,000 of these creatures which are tromping around and chomping and cutting and flooding forests, which is what beavers do. Well, they start out in the Tierra del Fuego, the island down there at the tip of South America. They apparently swim across to the mainland. And, of course, idiot politics is somewhere embedded in this. The Argentinian Navy apparently administered the island in the 1940s. They thought that beavers could spur a fur industry, basically... I guess, continue their territorial claims versus Chile, having more Argentinians there than Chileans. And while the industry never took off, the beavers sure did. They had no natural predators, because down there there's no bears, there's no wolves, there's no wolverines, there's no coyotes like there are in North America. Equipped with the local authorities. Well, at least they didn't bring bears here. I don't know, it's with some sadness this correspondent must, must note the loss of the Beaver Lodge in the William Pond Park in the Sacramento River in the American River Parkway in, in Sacramento, which is one of the great treasures of the local area. I must confess to Walt Disney movie style <laughs> swimming under and into one of the beaver lodges some years back where I encountered a very surprised mama beaver. And yes, there was that moment where I thought, ooh, bad idea. Uh, fortunately, mama beaver did not go on the attack. But, you know, beavers throughout this country are, have been... Great hydrologic engineers felling trees, building ponds everywhere, which have uh, caused a proliferation of other types of wildlife, which, uh, you know, once we came and trapped the beavers out across North America, caused a degradation of the environment. So I'm having trouble seeing why this is such a bad thing for South America. Anyway, uh, we need to do more research on this story as well. I don't know what the, what the big deal is. I have to confess, I've spent many hours hanging out not far away from the beavers eating the aquatic uh, vegetation there in the William Pond Park, and just want to say I had a great time doing it. And, and by way of clarification, the beavers were eating the aquatic vegetation, not yours truly. And in a story that combines psychology and gossip, which is an irresistible combination, we would uh, note that a story on NPR.org 
explained why there's a sound evolutionary basis for why we just love gossip. Apparently, researchers at Northeastern University did an experiment where they showed volunteers an array of faces, some of which were linked to negative gossip, like threw a chair at his classmate. They then presented a series of those faces to just one eye of each subject while the other eye viewed an unrelated image. The brain can handle only one image at a time, and when the faces that were linked to ugly rumors appeared, the subject's gaze lingered longer on those than the ones they'd been led to consider either nice or just neutral. Frank McAndrew, psychology professor at Knox College, noted that this reflex probably exists for good evolutionary reasons. Heeding negative gossip probably helped early humans avoid untrustworthy or threatening members of their own tribe or other tribes. Noted McAndrew, our intense interest in gossip is not really a character flaw. It's a tool for survival. Speaking of research scientists, we want to give uh, kudos to a couple of UC Davis plant scientists. That would be Simon Chang and Jorge Dubkovsky, who's appeared on this program previously. Last week, they won new awards, which have been funded jointly by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the Gordon and Belinda Moore Foundation. The grant will support their research and salaries for five years. Dr. Chan's been working on the genetic mechanisms in inbred plants. Dr. Dubkovsky has been studying wheat, and through his genetic investigations has found ways to boost the protein and mineral content of this cereal staple. Congratulations, gentlemen, and keep up the good work. All right, we've got less than five minutes left, so I want to cite a couple of articles. Uh, Matt Weiser's excellent piece in the Sacramento Bee on the troubled waters of Battle Creek. Battle Creek, California, that is. Where efforts by PG&E and, uh, and um, state and federal agencies are involved in a $128 million project to remove dams and uh, bring endangered salmon back to 48 miles of water, which have been blocked by dams for nearly a century. Of course, at the same time, Sierra Pacific, a logging company, has been clear-cutting away. The article presents a horrifying satellite photo showing the clear-cut regions, which has been degrading the same stream beds they've been trying to improve the quality of. We want to again compliment Matt Weiser for his pieces uh, related to water. And I uh, want to congratulate the, the McClatchy newspaper organization for the fine work they've been doing on a local and national level. In fact, I want to close today's show with uh, probably the most important uh, article I've seen in the media in the last week or two related to science issues, which is the article by Tim Johnson. It's a topic we've talked about before, steroids and other things in our meat. Well, in this case, it's not our meat, it's Mexico's meat. Apparently, Positive drug tests for five standout members of Mexico's national soccer team have forced Mexican officials to acknowledge a problem, a problem that goes far beyond sports. Apparently, much of Mexico's beef is so tainted with the steroid clenbuterol that it sickens hundreds of people a year. The article by Tim Johnson notes that uh, the use of the steroid is illegal, but it's nevertheless found a niche among ranchers who marvel at the way it helps cattle build muscle mass before they're sent to slaughter. The beef is pink and largely free of layers of fat, which wins over unwitting consumers. Notice the article the ranchers call this powdery substance miracle salts. A few call it cattle cocaine. The article notes that 297 people last year felt sick enough after eating tainted meat to visit hospital emergency rooms, and we bet that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
The question we want to ask at this juncture of how much of this Mexican meat might be finding its way to our dinner plates here in the U.S. The article notes that this happened even to a butcher, a third-generation butcher in Salaya, Mexico, who said, when I felt ill, my heart started to race and I got the shakes, which medically speaking uh, certainly could result from a steroid overdose. Of course, this only made the news when the soccer team tested positive for steroids and they are blaming the beef. Apparently, even Mexican President Felipe Calderon has gotten involved, acknowledging that contamination is a problem in the Mexican meat industry. Here's the part about the Tim Johnson's article I like the best. Worried about the fallout on the tourism industry, which employs one out of eight Mexican workers, the health and agriculture ministries rushed out a joint statement declaring Mexican meat is safe to eat. <laughs> and doggone it, I guess issuing a statement's a lot easier than taking the steroid out of the meat, isn't it? They note that sickness from eating clenbuterol-tainted meat used to be far worse. Why, in 2007, 795 people were hospitalized. Noted this statement, last year's rate of illness was less than one per million. I don't know about that. Mexico does not have 297 million people. Anyway, putting steroids into cattle to make them grow faster is insane. It should be banned. This is crazy. And it's, of course, a topic we are going to return to. We've said that a lot in today's program, but by God, we do it. And we will this time. Move them out! Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. Though the streams are swollen, keep them doggies rolling hard. That about does it for today's show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to our good pal, Mr. Will Durst. On next week's show, David Talbot talking about Smedley Darlington Butler, a man whose name might not be familiar to you, but should be. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. Hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, bro. Hi. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him in.